welcome everybody to Mind the Gap, Enablix's only podcast seeking sales and marketing alignment. My name is Nick Zeke Lopez, and today I am joined by Aaron Sears. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast with one of the best names I've ever heard for its target audience. <laughs> that needs to be our new subtitle, uh, Mind <laughs> the Gap, the podcast with one of the best names you've ever heard. Uh, no, 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 no. The podcast with the best name Aaron Sears has ever heard. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would like that more. So Aaron, um, I'm sure you're a household name to most, uh, people know you all over the world, but for those who don't, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a content strategist currently working at PayPal, um, but have a long history of working for organizations, large and small, kind of all over the sales funnel. So did a lot of B2B marketing brand type of stuff, um, got my career started in journalism at a daily newspaper, and then have kind of just weaved back and forth over the years doing stints in product marketing or um, and now in revenue enablement, which uh, has been has been new for me. That was a career pivot. So you're in revenue enablement now. You came from journalism. What made you pick revenue enablement? Revenue enablement picked me, I think. Um, <laughs> it, it's really interesting because I feel like it's, uh, you know, relatively, as we've talked about, new profession. And you find people from all over the place. You find people who have backgrounds in training or education, also like sales ops. So for me, just the, the reason why, you know, it was an appealing pivot for me is it was an opportunity to get closer to the people actually selling things, which had not historically been part of my roles. I was doing a whole lot of top of the funnel type of stuff, um, you know, as somebody who far, who focuses loud, largely on content, that was something that I always paid attention to brand building top of the funnel. So I kind of felt like it was an opportunity to be more well-rounded and get closer to the people, you know, making the, the sales. And now, you know, you, like you mentioned, you've worked like around sales, either closely or not closely um, mm -hmm. at a bunch of different organizations. Um, can you talk through what it's like to work in sales or revenue enablement or, or rev ops, whatever that is, yeah. in a large organization versus a small one? Is there one you prefer? Is it, what's it like? I mean, this is a political answer, but there are benefits to both. If, I, if, I'm, if you're pressing me, I would say it feels good when you're working at an organization, it can be large or small, but when you're seeing the impacts of what you're creating. So like at a small organization, it's easy to see the value of your contributions. You might work in the same office, not now, but you know, you're friendly with the people who are on the sales team and oftentimes you're doing custom content or other types of enablement for them. And that feels really, really good to see the immediate contribution in real time. I think that there's a very big downside to that, which is that you can turn into a service bureau, which obviously nobody wants. Um, I think it's easy to kind of turn into a McDonald's drive through like, excuse me, can I please have a sales deck? And yeah. <laughs> they know where to find you, so they'll find you. Um, and then I think on the other side of that is in large organizations, you know, there's a lot going on. It's super exciting, but there's always, as there should be more sellers than actual enablers. Mm 
Um, and then, and then you get into the hairy question of allocating resources. Um, so I, I would actually love your opinion on this, Nick, um, since this is very philosophical and you see it in large organizations is inbound versus outbound activities. I think that, you know, at a large organization, people are a lot more selective about the inbound activities that they take on. So, it, you know, and, and you're saying so. So the ratio of like, so you're an enablement person or an enablement team. What percent of the things you do are requests from the sales team or the marketing team, whatever that is, and how much you do is like, and that's your inbound. And then how much you do is outbound of like, this is a good idea. Exactly. Yeah. That I think is the the eternal challenge, like that perfect ratio of your own priorities versus others' priorities in the, you know, sales or enablement organization or even product marketing. I think, and I think this is where, I think this is where the industry is is starting to turn a a little bit because we're starting to say, we know that enablement is a really good idea. And we know that product marketing is like necessary. How do we trace these things back to revenue? And and at a a small company, that might be super easy, right? Like, uh, you know, you're the salesperson. uh, We have four, let's call it four salespeople. And I'm the sales enablement person. Uh, that's That's a made up ratio. If I work on a deck for you and then that deal closes because of that meeting, you'd be like, hey, I did the right thing. Like yeah. I, I didn't need to, to work on this like training and coaching thing I was going to do because that deck ultimately went towards, uh, uh, you know, revenue. In a large organization, that's really, really hard. I think in a large organization, like any, pinning any specific set of actions to revenue is really hard. And, and so I think it comes top down to say, hey, you know, we believe that revenue is going up. And like, it's an executive conversation. Like, like we believe revenue is going up because blank, right? Because, and, and I don't think it'll be this specific, but because, you know, our presentations go deeper and, and, and more, get more explicit with how we will help people than any of our competitors. Well, cool. That means that 90% of the sales enablement team's time needs to be doing decks because we have pinned that. To, so it's, it's going to be 90% inbound. But it has to start with a why are we getting more revenue? Why are we like what what is that thing? And then how is that reflected in our strategy? And you know, obviously in the next cycle of OKRs and that cycle of like business strategy you, you revise, but it's gotta be like motivated ahead of time, or you will always feel struggle. Like like it's funny what you said, you the sales team knows where to find you. That's such like it is it almost sounds so insipid, like 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 they will find you and make you work on the thing that you didn't want to work on. But that's kind of the challenge. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 you know, I think it also comes down to relationships as well, because I think that there are very quantitative metrics, like obviously shortening deal cycles, um, you know, faster time to hit quota and things like that, that people have talked about since the beginning of time. But I think that there's a similar conversation there in B2B marketing where a lot of revenue enablers come from about attribution. And I think that that can be very, uh, you know, influenced by the relationships that you have between revenue and enablement. So, you know, it's easy to to get into a conversation where there's, you know, marketing sourced revenue and then there's marketing influenced revenue. And like, what does that really mean? You know, who takes the credit for that? And so I think that if the relationships aren't there, that can get really into a like political or power grab type of a situation 
um, where, where, you know, when you are operating in an environment that feels like you have to justify what you're doing, it, it could feel burdensome. And it takes, I mean, and it would, I think it is an important part of sales enablement is it takes a lot of that creativity out of it. Um, uh, which, because like you said, like you're, you're, you're focused on hitting numbers, but it is strange in sales that is such a hit your numbers game that sales enablement is kind of like a, I guess, help other people hit their numbers maybe game because then you could say, Hey, I did, I did my job. They did. Can you tell me how, just, you know, your thoughts on how sales enablement should measure their success. I know you mentioned that it's important to have relationships in, in place, but with those relationships, what do you do? How do you measure the efficacy of what you're working on? So you know, I think that there's a couple different ways that you can go around it. In the absence of any defined structure that I've ever found about how to measure it, my um, my own little system is, you know, talking to the team and sending out, you know, surveys after every project. So, you know, after every single project that I complete, I do a survey where they can rate the content that I've created, rate my responsiveness to the project as a whole. They can rate things like this content was the appropriate level of detail, or maybe it wasn't, maybe I needed more detail or less detail. Um, and just things like that, where, you know, they can, they can rate their, their confidence in, you know, how they feel when they go out to talk to customers based on the projects that we've completed together. So for me personally, I I think that's one of the most effective metrics because it measures things and things in a quantitative way, but it also reinforces the relationships that you need to have and you need to preserve in an ongoing way as well. So it kind of hits both at one time. Well, and it's, well, I mean, it sounds to me like you started with the relationships because I don't know if anybody listening has ever tried to get the sales team to fill out a survey. Um, but I, I had very limited success with, with even that. So it sounds like the fact they were, they were willing or needed to go through and fill that out for you starts you in a good place. You, you also got to keep it pretty short, but yes. Yeah, that really is it. And I say like, you know, in, in any type of kickoff or project, I say, I'm a real person. Come find me and come talk to me about what you need. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come find me. I'll be in the parking lot after this. And we know where to settle it. <laughs> you know, like how this went. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you need to stay aligned before, during and after. And that is a very manual process. It's a lot easier to throw something up on a deck and talk about your contribution than it is to do the nitty gritty work of reaching out to people, marking it on your calendar, reaching out to them and you know, keeping the, the, you know, the conversation and the relationship in a healthy place. Yeah. It, it's interesting too, that you had mentioned, you know, like, Oh, was this too much detail? Was this too little detail? Um, because you're, you're, I mean, you're, te you're technically like your role is you are a sales enablement content strategist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Um, and, and it is funny. I would like to, I would like to know like what percent, like something like 75% of the industry must be just a sales enablement manager. Like that's just yeah. like the, or revenue is a manager. Like that's the title, but you're a content strategist. Can you tell me what the difference is and, and, and what you do as a strategist? Sure. So the way I see it is that the enablement managers are more like project managers. They do it all. And just for full disclosure, I can never do anything, all the different hats that they wear every day. So they do like, you know, all the training, all the the project management, really, the technology and, and content as well. But I think that 
what I've seen is when you make the decision in your organization to have a content strategist alongside an enablement manager, you're kind of saying that you're committed to elevating the quality of the content. So my role is almost act as a creative director. I'm taking super raw source material, oftentimes from product marketing or elsewhere in enablement, a lot of the time from the sales reps themselves, and then making it, you know, turning it into something that is a lot more consumable, I think, than an enablement manager would necessarily have time to do. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff is really internal focus. Um, and, you know, every enablement environment is a resource constrained environment. So making, you know, making it consumable is a big part of success, I think. But I think that sales deserves beautiful content too, just like consumers do. Okay. We're not going to, we're not going to quote that. That was too cheesy. Um, (laughs) No, so, so then, okay. um, Question for you. So I agree with you. Good content is important. Is there like, is there a prescribed ratio you'd stick? Like, so for instance, the question that always comes up is how many product marketers for a product manager? Should you get a product marketer for every product manager? One to four, one to eight, one to two. Yeah. And your head strategists to enablement managers. What is it? Should every manager get a strategist? Should a strategist go between? What do you think? I mean, I think that they should. Obviously, that's not always the reality, but I feel like enablement managers are some of the most like overworked people that I've ever come across in my entire career. So, you know, I think that they are very versatile and they can do it all, um, you know, to the extent that they can, but I don't, I almost don't know that it's fair to even ask them to do something like that. It's kind of like those roles that you see where it's, Oh, I don't know the CMO at a series, a startup and they do everything, you know, they do the content, they do the website, they do the social, they do a lot of the product marketing. Like that's a, you know, that's a high, high demand role. So I think that in a larger organization, it does make sense to kind of, um, you know, reallocate the different responsibilities to specialists if you can. And I, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that it, it comes to the, you know, in your sales cycle, how important is content, right? Because I could see like, you know, you're a content strategist. I could see a learning strategist, right? Like, like how important is training for your team? Um, because those are dedicated, like that's, that's an entire skill set you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Um, and all, all too often you're asking some of, you know, asking managers, sales name and product marketing uh, to be like, hey, you're the person that's good at everything, right? Because you're going to do everything. Um, and it's, it's sometimes impossible to do well. Um, so let's talk for a second about the role of, of content. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you, you talk about how important it is, um, but how do you know what to create and how do you know if what you're creating is, is like working or doing anything? Obviously I'm biased because I think that content is one of the most important parts of sales enablement. And I I think that this is the case because it's always on, you know, it's always ready to go. And I feel like it's kind of sales at scale. You can pull it out of, um, you know, your software and send it to somebody or pull it from Salesforce and it's just, you know, ready to go. And not to say that 
training is an important training is extremely important. And I think that people really benefit from having that shared collaboration and environment of learning. But I think for content, it's just something that can be applied at so many points in the sales cycle. Um, and you can scale up or down the level of detail as you need to. And I think it's just, it's also really exciting because again, sales enablement and revenue enablement is such a new field. There's such an opportunity to make a contribution with new formats, a new way of doing things that another area of the company that is more established might kind of already have the tracks, you know, set mm -hmm. for them. And I think that there's an opportunity to, you know, kind of do your own thing and make sure that you're bringing new ideas to the table. Like one of the pieces of, this, of content that I created this year was inspiration that I got from my kid's school. Like they had created a resource guide for talking about your kids with certain topics and the different, you know, objections that your, your kid might say, and then how you would want to respond to that. And then, um, you know, elevate the discussion to, in a way that transforms their opinion about something. Yeah. So you know, long story short, that that was something that I think the training guide was something that I ended up using at work. Like, and that's something that I think that is really unique to content and sales enablement is that inspiration can come from everywhere. And there's a big opportunity to make a contribution and, um, you know, kind of experiment and test and learn and see what's working and, you know, how you can help. I, I love the idea that you come to work and you're like, guys, I made a resource guide about how to talk about delicate items with your children. And people at work are like, what? And this is not what we need. And you're like, wait, yeah, need, that, need a difference. Wait a second. <laughs> Actually, you can just tweak a few things and all of a sudden you have a conversational roadmap for talking to a small business owner about getting them up and running with a new point of sale system. Like exactly. Or why not to get into a car with a stranger? Like it's all the same. It's all the same. Yes. Yeah. Well, there's so, incredible versatility in content that I think is unique to revenue enablement specifically. That's exactly right. I'm going to giggle about this for the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I want to touch on one last thing. Um, you know, you go to, you know, you go to your LinkedIn, you read your bio and, and you're a B2B uh, storyteller and marketer. So let's talk about creating, you know, telling stories and creating content. Like, like where does, you talked about finding that inspiration in, in what your kid brought home from school, but like, where does good content come from? And then how do you know, how do you know if it's good? I, I think that it's, it's being like, and this is how I describe it. It's being like a DJ, like on an intuitive level, you can read the room and you know when to bust out the greatest hits, the crowd pleasers that make everybody just go wild. Then there's the time to slow things down and, you know, explain things on a deeper level. You know, but you don't play Cotton Eye Joe for every single song? <laughs> no, that wouldn't go well. No, not at all. <laughs> and then, you know, to, to follow the DJ analogy, you can do a remix of things that you've already done that you know also worked well in the past and so you don't have to create other stuff necessarily from scratch but it really i think comes down to being intuitive and seeing you know drawing connections between things that otherwise seem unrelated my brain thinks in metaphors i don't think in terms of dates events hard facts like 
qual the quantitative facts like that. I think in, you know, feelings and metaphor and seemingly unrelated concepts. And so I think that that is part of being a storyteller is, you know, curating information um, that, you know, in, in, in addition to creating that information as well. It's being a really good observer of human behavior and then figuring out kind of where to go from there. I think it's also being pretty cutthroat about what somebody would perceive as boring. So I think it's really easy to get a high on your own supply, as they say, or think like, wow, this is so interesting. People really need to know about this. And I think that it's having that ability to, you know, put yourself in somebody else's position and say, why should I take time out of my day to care about this? Like, is this really going to move the needle for me? Is this really going to help me? Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's funny. I feel like I constantly, like a pendulum, I go back and forth from everything I create is awesome and people are going to love it to this sucks. Everything sucks. No one would ever read the stuff I put out. Why am I making this? I've oh, actually gone yeah. back and forth several times during this podcast, but no, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we don't have to air this to the light of day. <laughs> Cut it, book it. No, no. Um, okay, so so in, in closing, can you tell us a little bit about your process then? Um, uh, if you don't want to get, uh, and I don't think they say get high off your own supply. I think that's the thing that you're saying. I don't know that, that they say that, but that's okay. That's a <laughs> well, uh, we learned something new today, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, so my writing process, I think, is thinking. Like, I don't know how I how I think about something or I don't know how to communicate something until I write it down first. So that's a me thing. I wouldn't say that that's, an, I, at least I hope not. I hope that other people don't operate in that way. Um, so, you know, I think that that's kind of a shortcoming actually, to be honest with you, but I think it's- that, And by the way, we will have another podcast on all of our shortcomings for the people that want to. <laughs> oh boy. No. <laughs> no, keep going, keep going. Um, I think one thing that I find works very well for people who are the opposite of me, people who get stuck when it comes to the written format, people who feel a lot more natural in a conversation talking about something, is the good old fashioned iPhone voice memo. Like it, it's almost very like Mad Men, like speaking into your dictator, so your secretary, yeah. or is that what that's called? A dictaphone. A dictaphone, thank you. Speaking into your dictaphone to making sure that your secretary knows where you stand about something so you know he or she can type up the memo. That mm -hmm. is exactly kind of like what I've done at times for people who are really stuck and taking their iPhone, recording a voice memo tool, and then just hitting record. And you know, if you need to ramble yourself, walk around your office and step away from it. And then kind of coming back and, you know, working, working, you know, either in isolation or with somebody else and pretending like you were listening to it for the very first time and then seeing where you pay attention and seeing, you know, helping your most relevant points bubble up to the surface. Yeah, I, um, that was a, that, uh, and, and that's actually, you know, a lot of the advice I've seen, I love it. it it's used, so, you know, tra transcription software's gotten really, really good. Yeah. Um, and so th that's the thing I do is I will, I'll talk, I'll do like a little short video or something like that, trying to pitch something and I'll read it. I'll be yeah. like, can I get this down to three bullet points? Like, can I get like, like, or, or like, is all this bad? And should I do it again? Um, I, I like that idea of trying to, 
try to be a person that looks at your work uh, in an unbiased fashion somehow uh, and then work out from there. Yeah. And, and you need the time and space to do that, which isn't always realistic, I think, um, you know, these days. But that's a really important part of the process is having the space to step away and, you know, kind of come back to it because it's really, really difficult being the writer and the editor. Like that's almost, you know, that's an impossible ask. I mean, it can be done, but ideally it wouldn't be somebody who's creating and then somebody who's also, um, you know, editing the piece too. My favorite, and I know I've done this with you before, so thank you, is just to send something to like five people and be like, does this suck or not suck? Just like, like I need, I, I, I can't get out of my own head right now. I need you to tell me this, maybe this sucks, maybe it doesn't suck, just tell me. Um, and, and you get a lot of valuable feedback that way. Um, anything else to add uh, before we break today? No, thanks for uh, having me and this was fun to chat about. Absolutely, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Aaron Saris, Content strategist, This has been Mind the Gap, a podcast about sales and marketing alignment put on by Enablix. My name is Nick Zeke Lopez. Thanks for listening.